Did I distract you by talking about how I think someone's going to jump onto my porch and kill me? <laughs> yeah, where were we? <laughs> that would be a high jump, too. Welcome to All My Friends Are English Majors, the podcast where I, a business major, make my friends, almost all English majors, read popular fiction with me. This month, we are not reading popular fiction. We are reading literary fiction. It is Jane Eyre month, which, stick with me, gothic novel, October, spooky, all goes together. So, we will be reading... We'll have a bonus episode this month. This is actually the bonus episode. It's dropping first because we needed to read the original text. We needed to read Jane Eyre and talk about it before we could read a bunch of different versions of Jane Eyre to talk about it. And my guest for the month is my sister Betsy, who is an English major and a librarian and could potentially be called a a Bronte scholar. In the loosest sense of the term? Yeah, that takes about nine more years of schooling than I've got. But I did go to England. <laughs> Close enough. And the Bronte Parsonage. I did. Yep, twice. The ticket was good for 30... For three years, so... Oh my gosh. Well, you can't still go back, because COVID's definitely eaten those three years, but... Okay, tell me yeah. tell me about your qualifications. What makes you the perfect guest for Jane Eyre Month? Well, Jane Eyre is probably my favorite classic, Um, and I have studied it three times now in three different courses, wrote three different essays, slash collage expressions. Um, Did they make you make a collage about Jane Eyre? Did it have pictures of Michael Fassbender as Mr. Rochester on it? No, that was my freshman year English class. The movie hadn't come out yet Ugh. when I was a freshman in high school. So I will I will expound on that because I think that you're you're underselling how much you have talked about Jane Eyre. So you did an Oxford tutorial on the Bronte sisters, right? Which means that you went to England and then for a trimester met individually yep. with a tutor or in a very small classroom setting and all you did was talk about the Brontes? Yes. There were three of us in the Bronte Sisters tutorial. It met once a week and I still have all seven of their novels sitting on my bookshelf. So unlike me, because I was taught from a very young age by our mother that I was not going to be a Wuthering Heights girl, that um, so you've read the rest of the Bronte sisters as well and gone beyond Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre. You've read all of them? All of them, yep. I haven't read most of the poetry from their childhood and I haven't read the correspondence, but I've read all the novels. Oh, I feel like the correspondence would be fun. I feel like it would be very interesting to read letters between three very literarily minded sisters. Well, they all lived together for most of their lives, so I don't know how much of that correspondence is between them. Oh, so it'd be correspondence with others. I was kind of thinking 
It would be funny if um the letters were Did you listen to the episode where we talked about um Oh Beautiful World, Where Are You? No. So it's a Sally Rooney novel, and it's mostly told through there's a point of view chapter from one character and then a letter to the other character and then a point of view chapter from the other character and then a letter from the other character. And the first time I read it, I thought it was really literary and boring. And the second time that I read it, I was like, oh, these are just like friends, like laughing with each other for like being overdramatic in their 20s. And I was having a little giggle to myself about like, if the Bronte sisters were high-minded and intelligent and all of those things that I bet that their letters to each other would kind of read in the same way just in the 1800s instead of in the 2000s. Yeah, did you read the wink I put in the Google Doc about Monsieur Hege? No, I did not read it because I finished reading Jane Eyre 25 minutes before we started recording. I was actually deeply stressed that I was going to have to spark notes the end of the book. It's okay. Um, it was a short blog post from the British Library. Charlotte wrote some very ardent letters to her very married Belgian headmaster. Oh. From back in her school days. So... I guess that kind of goes with something that I was surprised by in Jane Eyre. Oh, hmm. no, no, no. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're pretending that everyone knows what Jane Eyre is about, but we still need to read the back of the book. Although, that really isn't going to hit on this one. Like, no, the back of the book is just kind of assumed at this point. I don't think any of my editions have a good synopsis. No, I am going to, spoiler alert, have Bailey post the picture of the front of my copy. I bought my copy in high school when the, like, really soft, leather-bound book craze was kind of starting. So my version of Jane Eyre is this, like, word puzzle, like... 2008 like image it says like lots of different phrases it says and then like locations and characters in the book and it really gives me the giggles so we'll at least put that in the like pod images on instagram but we should probably do a two-minute summary, which I don't know if you can go in-depth at all if you want to summarize this book in two minutes. I think you have to say, like, 54-word sentences if you really yeah, want to get it across. well, that's very consistent with the Victorian novel. Yeah. Well, we are not being paid by the word, unlike Charlotte No, Bronte. we're not. <laughs> so, let's see. Do you want to do it or do you want me to do it? I can do it. Okay. Don't, oh, now you don't have to sound so resigned. (laughs) This is a book full of a lot of resignation. Um, So we start with Jane's childhood. Uh, She's an orphan. She's raised by her cold, distant aunt and her mean cousins. And then she sees a ghost one night and she is thrown into hysterics and the apothecary comes and Jane says I'm being horribly mistreated and he says let's send you to an orphanage that's a better option 
or a school for orphans in this case. It's not a true orphanage, but she goes to school. Uh, the schoolmaster is really miserly and awful and he underfeeds them and they all get typhus and then he gets busted for being miserly and awful and they instate a board so that he can't unilaterally make decisions and Jane grows up in that school and becomes a qualified teacher and then she gets a job as a governess at a mysterious giant manor on the moors of Yorkshire which is where all the Bronte sisters set their books and she meets Mr. Rochester, who is uh, mysterious and dark and very passionate. And they start up kind of a romance, but their social classes are so different that he tries really hard to convince himself to marry someone else. But then he decides to marry her. And then they find out the shocking. And then on her wedding day, Jane finds out the shocking truth that Rochester has a wife. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that in the synopsis. I think it's okay to spoil 200-year-old novels. Oh, Betsy, the podcast is all spoilers. I don't even give a spoiler alert anymore. I think if you're writing, if you're doing a book podcast, you have to spoil the book. Yeah, I think that's fair. Anyway, so Rochester was trying to become a bigamist. He failed. His wife is crazy, and he keeps her in the attic locked up because she's homicidal. Um, and I will just say this is a controversial aspect of this book. Asylums were horrible, and divorce was impossible. He really did the best he could. Um, but... Jane decides that she can't run off to Europe with him and be his mistress. So she runs away, uh, goes to a small parsonage in a small town where she becomes a humble school teacher. And then she learns that all this time she's been living with distant relatives she'd never met. And uh, her first cousin uh, asks her to marry him and tells her they should go be missionaries in India together because he's a pastor and kind of a pious character in a way um but she turns him down because she doesn't love him and he goes off to india without her she says that she'd be willing to be a missionary and not be married to him but he wants both um so she goes back to thornfield which is the big Yorkshire Manor House to find it burned down by Mr. Rochester's insane wife. Uh, Rochester has survived, but he's missing is it a leg? Uh, a hand. I just got to this part. You guys can tell that I finished my reading and Betsy didn't because <laughs> I know that his hand is missing and he's gone blind. I knew about the blindness. I've read this book three times. Guys. <laughs> Um, but, uh, anyway, and Bertha has perished in the fire, and Jane and Mr. Rochester can get married, so they do, and they live happily ever after. Reader, I married him. That's what she says. With the way that Mom talks about how romantic that line is, 
I really have been convinced for my entire life, even though this is the second time I've read Jane Eyre, that that's the last line in the novel. Nope. First line in the last chapter. Last line in the novel is actually Sinjin, the cousin. There, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Everyone, I need to tell you how Sinjin is spelled. It's S-T John. His name is Saint John. Why in the world would it be pronounced Sinjin? I don't know, but it is. That's what everybody who's ever taught me the novel has said. Well, I will trust the people who taught you the novel. I have some questions. One, I want to know how we know it's Yorkshire. When my copy of the book that I read just had like a bunch of M dashes and then sure after like every single location. That was a thing they did at the time. Uh, So I assume it's Yorkshire because Yorkshire is where the Bronte Parsonage is located. It really is Charlotte's whole world for most of her life. Okay. Um, But yeah, uh, for those who have never read Jane Austen or the Brontes, uh, it's very common for them not to name places or to name dukes or nobility it gives them sort of an air of realism because um then nobody can say there is no duke of yorkshire oh that makes sense um modern yeah modern regency authors take note because i have a feeling that brits read those books and go there aren't this many dukes (laughs) (laughs) um The one thing I think that you're missing is how spooky this book is. So she sees the ghost. You mentioned the ghost in her childhood, but, like, on, at one point when her and Mr. Rochester are originally meeting, she wakes up in the middle of the night and smells smoke and hears an eerie laugh. She's always hearing an eerie laugh and comes out of her room and finds Mr. Rochester's bed set afire with him in it. And then... She, like, saves Mr. Rochester's life, and then the whole house is like, oh, it's so weird that the servant, Grace Poole, like, set him on fire. That's so crazy. And then no one ever says anything else about it. And then on her wedding night, well, the night before her wedding. The night before They don't get to the wedding night because Mr. Rochester says, and I quote, Bigamy is an ugly word. I meant, however, to be a bigamist, but fate has outmaneuvered me, which is a crazy sentence. Um, she wakes up the night before her wedding to Bertha, his wife, Bertha Mason, in his room, in her room, standing over Jane's body and then going into her closet and ripping her wedding veil in half. Yeah, scary. Yeah, there are some very kind of supernatural things that happen here. I think it'll be interesting when we get to White Sargasso Sea in a few weeks to see how the author interprets Bertha and her motives. I want to say one thing about Bertha. You mentioned that, like, the humane choice was to keep her locked in the attic, which I hate to agree with, but I do kind of agree. I think that it is only plausible in this novel because Bertha is legitimately insane. 
Like, I'm glad yes. that she was just not just, like, a woman prone to depression or, like, manic in some way. Like, I'm glad that it is truly written like The Exorcist and that there was no saving Bertha because I think that it kind of exonerates Rochester a little bit and makes him a better, like, male love interest to Jane. I, however, can tell it's the 1800s because dear Charlotte is saying some racist stuff about the way that Bertha looks. Oh, yeah. Like, it's crazy to describe her as, like, red-eyed. I'm like, okay. Like, we can chill. Well, eyes are probably bloodshot. And yes, they do have a really poor understanding of mental illness at this time, but you're right, even if they'd gotten it, it would have been hard to cure schizophrenia without modern medicine. Correct. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that like Bertha is truly nuts. That Or at least Yeah. I think is important. Or else he really is just yeah. a bigamist. He is, and she and You'll notice Jane Eyre does not let him become a bigamist. That's true. Once she knows, she's out of there. Well, I found her reasoning interesting, though, because, yes, once she knows, she's out of there. But part of the reasoning, which is very long-winded, there's so much thinking in this book. As a skimmer, I found it difficult to read sometimes. Um, But... She thinks about all the stories that Rochester told her about the other women that he was with on the continent. And she's like, if I become his mistress, he'll tire of me. And I, like, won't be loved by Rochester anymore. Like, as much as, like, Jane has this very, like, straight spine morality about her the whole book, she is a little bit selfish in her reasoning as to why she doesn't want to stay with Rochester and it's not because she doesn't love him and doesn't want to be with him. It's that like one, she wants to be his wife and two, like she's very worried that she will just be like all the other women he's been with. If she chooses to stay and become his mistress. That's true. I had never thought about that, but I, yeah, I do think that, She's also not willing to become loose like those continental women. Charlotte Bronte is not a fan of the French. No, oh my gosh. She, the, the whole, um, so Mr. Rochester has an illegitimate daughter that he calls his ward, and he's like, well, the French woman I was seeing was apparently seeing so many other men, who knows? If she's actually my child, but I'm, like, doing the upstanding thing of taking care of her. I'm so sorry. That's his kid. Like, that's his kid. I don't know if I agree. There's no DNA test. There's no Maury. He's kind of just got to take that on faith, and he did watch her come home with another man. Yeah, like, two years after Adele was born. Um, anyway. At the end, after Jane and Mr. Rochester get married, Jane's like, well, I'll be Adele's governess again, essentially. And 
it doesn't work out because she's caring for Mr. Rochester because he's blind. Um, but she sends Adele to a school where sound English education corrected in great measure her French defects. Oh my god. Yeah, they weren't, she wasn't a fan of the French. That's like a really (laughs) harsh read, though. It is. Yes, I've always thought so. Well, and like that she turns Adele into a nice English girl. Well, and the fact that Adele's mother was French. Like, I was talking to mom on the phone the other night, and I was like, do you think that Charlotte Bronte is trying to say, like, the French women are loose? And mom was like, maybe? She had a less harsh read of Charlotte than I think you do as someone who has studied her more, which is, I think that you might be saying that Charlotte has a specific issue with the French and mom was just saying this is just how the British wrote about the French at the time no I am saying that there is a general British issue with the French I'm not saying that Charlotte had any particular dislike for them although they were Catholic and that was a problem for her I think so were the Brontes was the Brontes father a parson then he was he was an Anglican person okay cool And Charlotte later married a cleric. She's actually the only one of the three who didn't die of tuberculosis because she died of severe morning sickness. Oh, being a woman is just an endless hellscape, isn't it? Inescapable. (laughs) It was then. They've got much better treatments for HG now. That's good. Okay, so when I learned this book in high school... They literally, every, like, third page, Mr. Feaster, when he was not pronouncing Adele's name as Adelaide, which, as someone who has a French minor, the accent is not in the right spot for it to end with an A sound. No, and I think it's the wrong direction, too. Correct. As it being Adele. Um... He was talking about the symbolism in this book, which, like, literally on, like, page three, Jane is talking about how she, as a child, sat behind a red curtain to read a book, and he really was all in on, like, and what does red symbolize? Come on, folks, like, tell us what red symbolizes. And it was like, oh, we're gonna do this every three pages for the entire book, but it's everywhere. Yeah, every teacher loves to talk about the Red Room, which is the room that Jane's uncle died in, and the place where she sees the ghost as a child. But, like, do we think Jane, that Charlotte Bronte was, like, really trying to do it to him? Like, this book is so long. And says so much that I cannot help but think she did a lot of things on purpose. But she can't have done everything on purpose. At some point, a book just has to have plot. You can't shove it yeah, full of... a cigar is just a cigar. I'm with you. So am I not allowed to... Like, so I put in the outline how much symbolism, symbolism do we think Charlotte is doing on purpose? And you responded with, uh-oh, authorial, authorial intent. What does that mean? 
So as an English scholar, or as a scholar of literature, you're really not supposed to talk about what the author meant. Once the text is out, the meaning that the author intended is irrelevant. We can only talk about what we see in the text itself. So all of the things that you are seeing then with the ghosts and the red room and everything like that, we, as the readers, are just kind of supposed to be like, this is a spooky book. Red tells us things like the description of the big scary house and the laughs in the wall. Like, Yeah, we can talk about symbolism, absolutely, but we have to talk about symbolism in the text. We can't talk about what Charlotte intended the symbol to mean. Mm. Okay. Interesting. But, yeah, I think it's... On, on the other hand, I do think it's safe to say that there's a lot of intentional symbolism in this book. Because that's just, like, Even standard though, for when it was written. That's standard for when it was written. Um, I think, as I was thinking about it this morning, that's a very Judeo-Christian thing. The Bible has a lot of hit-you-over-the-head symbolism <laughs> in it. That's true. And this is a very, like, I would say, like, Christian novel. She goes to a Christian school. She meets an angelic little friend who teaches her about, like, like, Jane has a very strong sense of right and wrong in the world and, like, really refuses to, like, be, like, beaten down by people who are being unfair. Like, would you say that she has a very strong sense of, like, justice and fairness she does she has a strong sense of personal morality um i have ever since i read that third or second edition introduction that i sent you uh -huh. conventionality is not morality is a quote that i live by or i try to live by that makes sense i think that like Jane is described often as, like, small and, I think, kind of as having a weak constitution. And, like... Yeah, not a weak constitution. She never gets the typhus. Well, at the beginning, but then she, like, she, she faints. She, she is a woman prone to having a shock. She's fainted twice in her entire life. Just not a lot in the age of the corset. Oh, that's a fair, that's a fair read. I think that, um, let's see, conventionality is not morality. Where was I going? I think that it's fun to read about Jane. So I found this book to be a little bit of a slog because in most adaptations, besides I guess I can tell people what books we're going to read so people understand. We're going to read a book called Jane, which is a rewritten version of Jane Eyre. We're going to read a book called My Plain Jane, which, if you'll believe it, is a rewritten version of Jane Eyre. And then we're going to read a book called The Wide Sargasso Sea, which is from Bertha's point of view and kind of her life and what leads to her eventual being locked in the attic. Um, and... I was talking about this with mom the other night. Um, man, maybe it should have just been you and mom on the Jane Eyre episode. Um, 
Yeah, we should almost have her as a special guest. <laughs> um, I went into this second reread of Jane Eyre expecting it to be a story about Jane and Mr. Rochester. And it's not really a story about Jane and Mr. Rochester. It's a story about Jane. And part of it is her love for Mr. Rochester, but it is also about her life and her sense of morality and her, like... She doesn't really grow and change. I feel like a lot of books I'm always like, and the characters are growing and changing. But, like, Jane grows, but in her heart of hearts, she's, like, the very same child who really yelled at her aunt for the unfairness of her treatment and was like, I will hate you for as long as I live. Here are all the ways in which I have been wronged. And I guess she does grow in that she, like, finds a lot of space in her heart for forgiveness for people when they are deeply undeserving of it. But, yes, it'll be, yeah, the, go ahead. The ethic of this book is very deeply Christian. You can't get away from that. And to anybody listening who either loves reading the classics or is thinking about studying English, read the Bible. You don't necessarily have to come to the belief that I have, but the Bible is really important in Western literature for a long time, and knowing it really helps. That makes sense. I mean, I think that I underestimate how much my upbringing has made reading easier, because I will, like, talk to my friends who did not grow up in the church or did not grow up in the church in the way that, like, we grew up in the church. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, you know, like, how it happens in the Bible. You know? Like, that story's already there. We read this before. Yeah, there's so much illusion that you miss by... Avoiding the Bible. Illusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. <laughs> um, I had been joking all week that um, I don't really love when I'm not smarter than my guest because then I will, like, make a disingenuous, like, reading of the book. Like, when I put things in the outline, like, is Jane the original I can fix him girl? I was like, I'm going to put that in the outline, and Betsy is going to tell me all the ways in which Jane is not the original I Can Fix Him girl. <laughs> but the reason that I asked that is because when the bed gets set on fire, and then all the servants are like, oh yeah, it's crazy that this happened, and she comes downstairs the next morning, and everyone's like, oh, isn't it so crazy that this random fire just caught in Mr. Rochester's room and he managed to save himself? Jane doesn't ask any questions! No. And, yes, that is a failing. She becomes almost worshipful of Mr. Rochester, and she points that out as a flaw in herself. But there's never any um, desire to fix him. She thinks he's perfect as he is, which is its own problem. Do you think that Jane Eyre is a reliable narrator? I do. Um, it's hard to know. Can we ever know 
if the narrator of an autobiography is reliable. But, yeah, we don't have a lot of reasons to think that she's not. I agree. I think that a lot of the first-person books... You are also a, a reader of cartoon cover romances. Oh, yeah. I, and most of them are written in the first person, and I really don't know if I've ever read one with a reliable narrator. Because I, every single time, I'm like, okay, but no one acts like that. Like, yeah, like, yes, all of us experience insecurity, all of us experience flaws, like, we have miscommunication with our partners, we have miscommunication with people who aren't our partners, but, like, no one acts the way that people are acting in cartoon cover romances. And I didn't really feel, I didn't have any, okay, no one acts that, that way moments in Jane Eyre. Like, when she is no. picking on herself for her flaws, I'm like, yeah, with everything you're telling us, that has happened, and with the way that you are, like, speaking, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Like, the all of Jane Eyre, you're kind of like, that makes sense. Except for the supernatural stuff with the ghosts and the, like, ripping of the veil and, like, the laughing in the walls. But... Well, but the laughing and the veil ripping are a real person doing a real thing. Oh, I'm getting kind of spooked. I've been recording in my living room because um, I'm closer to the Wi-Fi router. But I'm sitting right next to my big French doors, and it's dark outside. And sometimes when I talk about spooky things, and it's dark outside, and I have, like, I'm surrounded by windows, I'm like, something bad's gonna happen to me. And I'm getting kind of spooked, but, like, it's not like anyone's going to come in the doors. Uh, Barney can protect you. Or Sam. Yeah, Sam's in the back playing Baldur's Gate with the cat, I think. Okay, but... Yeah. Um, Did I distract you by talking about how I think someone's going to jump onto my porch and kill me? <laughs> yeah, where were we? <laughs> that would be a high jump, too. Well, I the thing that makes me nervous is some we have to plastic wrap the doors in the winter. And one time Annie's Christmas present for someone else got thrown onto the porch. So we brought a chair outside and then I, like, pulled myself up. But I think if you had stronger lats than I do, like, you could just do it. So I think you could climb. But anyway, I digress. Um, I want to talk about this book. So I think of Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice kind of in the same sphere. In my head, I'm like, okay, there's the Brontes and there's Brontes. Jesus, that was Midwestern. There's the Brontes. And there's the, there's Jane Austen and like this, she, they wrote the same books at the same time. But like, these books are, um, this one was more passionate. There's kissing in this book. There is. Uh, there's not much, um, and none between people who aren't engaged Um. that I know of. But yeah, uh, first of all, uh, this was written t- 25 years after Pride and Prejudice, although, if anything, the Victorians, I think, were more prudish than the Regency set. Uh, another thing to note is that um, Jane Eyre, I know you have talked to me about moments of 
levity and humor that you found, but it is mostly a pretty serious book. Jane Austen was a comedic writer. Yeah. She wrote Pride and Prejudice to be funny and farcical and make fun of the excesses of her day. And Jane Eyre is really trying to make some, like, heavy social commentary. Um, I've heard it described as proto-feminist. I think that's a fair designation. Well, and I thought BRB Googling when did Marx write? Oh, uh, much far, way after Bronte. Or maybe not way after, but I think 1855 was the manifesto. He had to have been a little inspired by Jane Eyre then, because... Jane Eyre comes into $20,000. Well, mm, she comes into 20,000 pounds. Her, her uncle dies and through estrangement and everything else, she ends up with the money. And she finds out about it when she's with Sinjin and her two beloved cousins, who she just found out are her cousins, literally that minute, have been like sent away to be governesses. And she's literally like, what would I do with $20,000 besides be trapped? $20,000 would trap me. But if I gave each of you $5,000, pounds, 5,000 pounds, and I kept 5,000 pounds, then I and all of the people that I love and cherish could also, like, live the life that they want and, like, would be made happy by. And I would not be, like, trapped by my wealth, essentially. So I thought that was kind of, um, that was hot girl behavior. Yeah, that was a good thing that she did. And then she goes off and marries a rich man with a lot of money of his own. Right, but she hasn't heard from Rochester in six months. She is determined to be away from him because he, again, is married. Like, she doesn't make that choice... I don't know. She makes that choice out of, like, goodness and kindness in her heart. Like, she does. Yeah. And, um, because she has finally found friends. She's never had friends before. And at this point, she doesn't know that Sinjin feels like he's in the friend zone. Ugh. Sinjin. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I feel... I feel like we should talk about Sinjin and then we can talk about Mr. Rochester because I feel like there's lots to talk about with Mr. Rochester. Um, There is. Sinjin proposes marriage to Jane and Jane turns him down and he really is on his Mr. Collins behavior. Like she sort of... Just in that he's, like, really yeah. obnoxious after Jane refuses him and is kind of like, I, I don't understand how you don't understand that I am, like, making you a very advantageous proposal. Like, I am giving you the best option you're ever going to have. What's going on? And this truly is the funniest part in the book to me. I have already talked about this with you once this evening, but I'm going to say it again. He is a parson, so Jane and his sisters and him all live together because she's his first cousin. Literally his first cousin. Gross. Um, 
he sits them all around the fire to do their little Bible reading at the end of the night, and he reads the last part of Revelation about what hell is like, and is, like, staring at Jane the whole time. Basically, like, I feel as if you are not following God's plan by refusing to marry me and become a missionary, so just, you know, I think that you're probably gonna go to hell. That's so funny. She's willing to become a missionary, too. That's the part that God's calling her to, if anything. I don't, so, yeah. It's it's frustrating, and yes, I am always bothered by Victorian novels, and pre-Victorian novels for that reason. Till Darwin, marrying your first cousin was kind of okay. Yeah. Well, and another thing that's annoying about Sinjin, and I texted this to you today, is, like, he's the guy at the party you wish you hadn't struck up a conversation with. Because if you think that, like, Jane Eyre has a very, like, strict and straight moral backbone at, like, throughout this book, Sinjin is, like, the worst dude you know every once in a while makes a good point. Like, he, like, finds Jane a job at a school, which he's really excited about, which he promised to do, but when he's telling her about it and he's like, you're too highbrow a lady to want this job. Like, you're not going to want to stay here and you're not going to like it, but, like, I found this for you, even though it's beneath you. And it's just like, shut up. Like, half the time he's talking, you're like, can you shut up? I think it is interesting that it seems like Charlotte Bronte has a very good point of view of... Like, Christian morality and Christianity, but she, like, her dad is a parson, and both men who are of the cloth in this book suck. Yeah, I think that in the end, Sinjin goes off to India by himself. He does, and then he dies. Yes, but. He's not dead at the end of the book. He's just about to die. And they're all very old at that point. I think she's writing this like 40 years later. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't know. I don't put him in quite the same place as Mr. Brocklehurst. I don't think he's a hypocrite. I think that he's... Just unyielding. But I think that he wants to be content in what he... um with what he has and where he is in his life, he's just not. And that's a struggle I can identify with as a Christian. And as a Christian who is currently living in a small town in upstate New York, so far away from everybody I know. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that yeah. um, I found him to be, it's it's fascinating the way that Jane talks about him. Because yeah. he really is like a little bit of a, a little bit of a slave driver for the faith, I guess. Like, he very early, which, like, to me is not a compliment. Like... No, but I think the biggest difference between him and the superintendent of Lowood Hall, who's the other clergyman in the book, is that he drives himself as hard as he wants everybody else to drive. That's true. He learns Hindustani while Jane learns Hindustani. He reads the Bible every day. His sisters don't wear fur and silk while the orphans in his care starve. 
Oh, I forgot about that. I guess maybe we should talk about class. Yeah. Definitely a theme. A huge here. theme. There's Mrs. Reed versus Orphan Jane in the beginning. There's Jane at the school with Brocklehurst and his rich benefactors who are upset when the girls have their breakfast of moldy porridge replaced with cheese and bread. Wow, what a breakfast. Cheese and bread. Uh, well, that is, yeah. At that point, Mr. Brocklehurst is unilaterally ruling the school. Yeah. The benefactors, once they find out about the typhus epidemic and the poor conditions that caused it, actually are pretty offended by the conditions of that school. So what is typhus? I am not entirely sure. Um, I, it's, I think it, it's different from typhoid, but I think it might be another one of those diseases you get vaccinated for when you go somewhere tropical now. Uh, transmitted by lice, ticks, mites, and rat fleas. Purple rash, headaches, fever, delirium. Historically a cause of high morality during wars and famines. I wonder... Well, maybe it's like, um... Maybe it's like... So plants are more prone to pest and disease when they aren't healthy. So it is the same with humans. You are more prone to falling ill to a disease when you are already weaker. So, like... It is. That's probably the typhus, was the fact that they were, like, practically in a famine state for no... Oh, I'm yawning. For no reason beyond the stinginess of Mr. Brocklehurst. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely the reason, and that's... That was a signal, I think, that the girls were being very poorly kept. But the other main class difference, I think, is, um, and maybe you can speak to this more eloquently than me, because I was really desperately trying to get through the book, is when Mr. Rochester has his group of, like, countryside acquaintances come stay at Thornfield Manor, and he begins to court Miss Ingram, specifically because he knows he can't be with Jane Eyre. Um, but there's, like, that's the big class difference, right? Is when Jane is forced to hang out with the rich folks all the time. It is, and Rochester seems fairly clueless about the fact that that is uncomfortable for her. And the reasons that it might be uncomfortable for her to do that. Um, on the one hand, he doesn't, he seems to see in Jane a kindred spirit regardless of class and that's admirable but he really doesn't understand why she might struggle and like to give an example of that like she like tries to leave the room because her child that she's in charge of has gone to sleep and the governess shouldn't just like hang out with a bunch of people with land and she leaves, and Mr. Rochester is, like, Mr. Rochester is, like, your drunk friend who won't let you leave the party even though you're tired. Like, he's, like, Yes. Can I? Well, why would you leave? Like, you're supposed to hang out with me. You've ignored, you've ignored me all night. I think Jane literally says, like, you have not looked at me all night. Like, Adele has gone to bed. Like, I shouldn't be in there. 
And he really, he's kind of petulant. He's a very petulant character. He is. And he really, she really does stand on the periphery the whole time. He doesn't manage to convince her to participate in the world's most extra game of charades. That was, what is the symbolism of that? Um, I'm not totally sure. Uh, Bridewell is a prison, according to my footnotes. Um, and watching them pantomime a wedding, Rochester and Blanche, I think, is supposed to be symbolic of something. So do we think Um, the pantomime of the wedding is, like, foreshadowing? He wants it to be. (laughs) Well, he wanted it to be for Ingram, though, not for Jane. Well, he's... Well, he's pantomiming with Blanche Ingram. But he's really doing the charade for Jane? He's dramatic. Maybe. This man is dramatic. He's, yeah, um, that is a very gothic novel kind of trait. Um, so. Are you reading about the symbolism in your footnotes? Oh, no, um. I am looking for the definition of a word that we're going to need to know at some point. This is the fun part about having an actual English major on, guys. This is how I felt when Lydia and I read The Handmaid's Tale, which she had studied in class. I was like, wow, I've come to learn. No offense to my other English majors who have been on. I just simply feel like The Handmaid's Tale and Jane Eyre have a little more... um literary punch to them than, say, A Court of Thorns and Roses or Verity. You've definitely read a lot of cartoon cover romances. Yes. I'm I'm kind of excited for a little bit of a, bit of a heavier month after doing Colleen Hoover and then Akatar and then Hockey Erotica. Like, I do think I got a little whiplash, like, trying to read Jane Eyre after reading books called The Score and The Risk, which is in the second L. Kennedy series, because I cannot stop reading them. I'm really excited, actually, while you're finding that definition, I'll tell you what I'm going to read next. Um, I... Um, do you remember that I tell you I'd love you, but then I'd have to kill you, like, plaid, um, yes, Allie Carter book? She wrote a standalone adult spy novel that came out, like, two months ago. And I'm gonna read that next. Oh, well, first I'm gonna read oh, Jane for the pod, but then I'm, and I'm hoping it will take me a lot less time than Jane Eyre. It should, um. That is why I tend toward the cartoon cover romances is because they don't challenge me. I need, I don't want a Mr. Rochester very badly. No. Oh my gosh. You don't want a man who has to like, he does. I will say here, let's talk about Mr. Rochester. I think Mr. Rochester is, Rochester is a hero. I do. I do, too. Frankly, because all of Bertha Mason's family was in the West Indies, he could have killed her and been done with it. Right. Or he could have sent her to that moldy, airless cabin in the woods where he knew she'd take sick quickly and die passively. He also could have sent her to an asylum. Yes. Bedlam, I think, existed by then, and it was horrible. 
And, like, he could have also, like, humiliated her and her family by going to Parliament for a divorce. Like, he really, I do believe he did the best he was. I just can't get over, and I did intend to become a bigamist. That is so (laughs) funny. It was kind of, it kind of reads a little, um, he's a little Jekyll and Hyde in the way that he speaks. Because he really is, like, so soft to Jane in some areas. And then in other ways, he's like, it's like he, as soon as he got found out at the church, it, he becomes very manic. And he's like, it's like he's putting on a little show. Yeah. Um, yes. I think there is some context that you need to appreciate Rochester. So first, um, I believe he's considered a Byronic hero. So a Byronic hero, according, is based on the work of Lord Byron, who was a poet, a novelist, or, yeah, a romantic poet. Um, And a lot of his characters were very tall, dark, mysterious men. I think he fancied himself a tall, dark, mysterious <laughs> man. So the quote from the Wikipedia article um, is, says, Historian and critic Lord Macaulay described the character as a man proud, moody, cynical, with defiance on his brow, and misery in his heart, a scorner of his kind, implacable in revenge, yet capable of deep and strong affection. People also think Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights is a Byronic hero? But I have not seen the deep affection. I think that it would be fair to say that you and I are never going to be up on Heathcliff. No, um, I think that Wuthering Heights is a good book in its own way, but a mistake that people make when they read it is trying to see Heathcliff as a romantic hero, and he's just not. Doesn't he? He's the villain, guys. Doesn't he just, like kill her dog because she won't marry him? No. He hangs the dog of the woman who's willing to run away with him from a tree. Why? I think the dog survives the hanging. Possibly. But it's just this very awful, symbolic thing. And the Brontes were very into animals. So characters who hurt animals are bad people. This is one of the few like more literary novels that I have ever read that just, like, like, Mr. Rochester just has a dog. And, like, Sinjin just, like, has a dog. And that is fun. Because, like, in Regency novels, the only dogs that exist are either, like, hunting hounds that belong to the masculine man, or they're, like, little nasty dogs that belong to the worst woman you've ever met. I think you've only read Austin. But yeah. Well, I've also read Bridgerton, and doesn't that count? Sort of? <laughs> it's certainly Regency. It's set in the Regency, but it's not written in the Regency era, and it's certainly not literary. How could you say such a thing? I think you could almost call Mom's favorite Regency author, Georgette Hare, kind of literary? It's certainly more liter- literary than Bridgerton or any other cartoon cover romance we've ever read. Yeah. Well, and, like, I do think the dogs in this book are fun. Like, Mr. Rochester just has a dog named Pilot. And Pilot, this is actually very sweet. 
So Jane goes and finds Rochester where he's living in the woods, basically, because he's been brought down by the times. And by the times, I mean his wife setting the whole house on fire and then jumping off the roof and then him saving all the servants and in so the house falling on his head. All of that to say. Jane, like, shows up to his house, and the servant was supposed to bring him a glass of water, but Jane is like, let me do it. And then she brings him a water and responds to his questions, but while she is responding to his questions, the dog is, like, losing his mind because he recognizes Jane. That's so cute. That's just, like, a very fun thing to put in there. That is how a dog acts. You're so right for that, Charlotte Bronte. Yes, and if you read the rest of the Bronte novels, maybe not so much Wuthering Heights, where the dog is just kind of a symbol of what's going to happen to Isabella Linton if she's stupid enough to run off with Heathcliff. Spoiler alert, she is. Um, Does he kill her? No, he doesn't, um, but she has to, like, go into hiding with their son. Oh my god. And then she dies of natural causes, because she's a woman in the 1840s. I don't think I want to read Wuthering Heights. Yeah, just appreciate it for what it is. It's not a romance. All right, you heard it here first, folks. We will not be recommending Wuthering Heights in the recommendation section of CompCon. <laughs> just, if you're here for a pro-Wuthering Heights podcast, log off. You're not going to enjoy this one. No, I didn't realize Jess was a fan. Sorry, Jess. No, no, no. I didn't say Jess. Oh, what did I, what did you say? Just. Yes, I said just. No, I don't think, um, I think that my friends are Charlotte Bronte girls. So for those of you who don't know, it is long believed, at least in the Tucker clan, that you're either a Charlotte girly or an Emily girly. You don't love Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights. You either love Jane Eyre or you love Wuthering Heights. And we are from a Jane Eyre family. Yes, or at least a Jane Eyre mother. I don't know if if you asked her mother or dad's sister or his mother, they have an opinion. Well, I think the important ones are actually Marianne and Sue. Oh, true. I wonder where they fall on that spectrum. I don't know. There, the Mulsberries are sensible stock. It would surprise me if they were Wuthering Heights women. True, but the most sensible one is Agnes Gray. Well, is Agnes Gray, so how many of Charlotte Bronte's novels are just named for the titular character? Agnes Gray is an Anne novel. Oh. There's a third sister. And no one's an Anne. So at least my read on it at Oxford was that if you actually played, what is it? Kiss Mary Avoid. I know there's a. We can call it Kiss Mary Avoid. Yeah. So, Kiss Emily, Mary Charlotte, Avoid Anne. Yeah. So Anne is that depressing then? Uh, I think her second novel is stronger than her first. I actually like The Town of Wellfell Hall. I think it's got some mystery and adventure and a woman a battered woman fleeing an alcoholic husband which was not a thing people talked about let's go that's fun um but no 
Agnes Grey is Jane Eyre, but boring. Agnes is the governess who marries the sensible cleric. Then what is the point? Why even publish it? Well, they needed money, and Branwell was a drunk, their brother, so he wasn't going to help them. Mm. I... Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of Little Women core, in that you would just like publish a book about a woman living, because like, at least it was a book about a woman. Which is not to say I don't love Little Women. I think that Little Women being published for those reasons is being published for those reasons in its purest form. But perhaps Agnes Grey is being published for those reasons not in its purest form. No, and it's not. Publishers weren't looking for books by women or about women. All three of the Bronte sisters published under masculine pseudonyms when they started out. Then why why publish Jane Eyre? Because they liked Jane Eyre. And because at the time they thought Currer Bell was, I think, I don't remember, but I think they thought it was a pseudonym for someone more famous than Charlotte Bronte. Mm, They said maybe Lord Byron has moved to literature. (laughs) No, Byron died young and tragically, like all the other romantics, I think. Well, except Wordsworth. Who was, um, who was Mary Shelley's best friend? She was inspired by Byron, wasn't she? Or was she inspired by a different poet? Yeah. No, she was. But did Mary Shelley also publish under a pseudonym? Um, no, I think, I don't know if she did. I think. First of all, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley was the daughter of great feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. Oh, I always forget about the Wollstonecraft of it all. But secondly, the story of Frankenstein is that um, Mary Shelley was, I think, challenged to tell a scary story at one of those literary parties that she and her husband used to throw. And she told one that was so intriguing, she decided to make it into a novel. Okay. That's fun. I feel like we should talk about... Did we talk about Mr. Rochester? I feel like we've talked Um, about Jane Eyre. I don't know if... No, I don't think we did talk about Mr. Rochester all that much. So I I told you Byronic Hero. The other thing you need to know is that I mentioned the Belgian professor earlier in the podcast. Yes. Charlotte was hung up on this guy. Like, um, her first novel... Pre-Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre was the first published, but she wrote one before she wrote Jane Eyre that was published posthumously. It was called The Professor, and it was about a professor at a Belgian boarding school who falls in love with the people. Her third was Shirley. Shirley falls in love with her Belgian-French tutor. And her fourth was Villette, which takes place at a Belgian boarding school. So Jane was down bad for this man. No, sorry. But Charlotte, yeah, Charlotte was down bad for this man. Uh, yeah, the British Library blog that I looked up on it pointed out that we only have her letters to him. We don't have his letters to her. So that makes it look one-sided when it might not be. But yeah, she and Monsieur Heger had a long-standing kind of, she had a kind of a long-standing fixation on the guy, I think. And also, that was the exotic place that she knew. As I understand it, she lived in Haworth, the parsonage, and then she went to boarding school in Belgium, and then she came back to Haworth, and that was kind of her life. 
This is very, um, it's very, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it. It's very passionate English student has a crush on their, like, favorite English teacher in high school. Oh, it so is. Yeah. Like, there was always at least, like, one young, handsome male teacher who, like, paid a little too much attention to the girls, but not in a creepy way, but kind of in a, looking back, like, but also, in this case, though, he wasn't, I don't think he was young or handsome. He was older, he was married, but he took her seriously as an intellectual. Oh, that's very Professor Bear. A little Professor Bear, yeah. Um, But you'll notice another, one of my favorite funny parts of Jane Eyre is when Mr. Rochester asks her at the very end, so you don't find me handsome now that I'm one-handed and blind? And she says, well, you never were, sir. Jane is so funny. She is. She's very blunt. And that, I don't think, I think that Charlotte is very much with Blanche Ingram, who earlier in the book says, an ugly woman is a blight on society, but an ugly man? There's something about a very stern guy who's not necessarily conventionally attractive. Yeah. I agree. I, this book, when you get through the first 200 pages where she's stuck at Lowood School, is fun. Like, I would really be like, this is a slog. And then she would hear a laugh in the walls and I would be like, wait, Bertha is coming. The romance is coming. Like, I know that plot is coming, but this is not, I would not say the first third of this book is particularly plot driven. And as someone who is so used to reading books that are like pretty much exclusively plot, I was like, oh my God, (laughs) like, can we get somewhere, please? Yes. Yeah. And yes, it takes a while to get to Mr. Rochester, but once you're there, um, yeah, so he's meant to be kind of this type, this dark. You're not wrong that he is, that I think in a book that was written later when the trope had really been established, he would have been the bad boy she tried to fix. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think she does, I think she does fix him a little bit in that, like, when she is blunt to him and when she is like, you're being kind of terrible, he's like, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, I am being kind of terrible. And then sometimes he'll, like, roll it back a little bit. Yeah, but it's nice that at least at first, that's just who she is and how she acts. Jane is a woman with self-respect and with a strong sense of how people should behave toward her and she expresses that there isn't she's not consciously trying to fix anybody yes i agree she also is blunt not just when she's insulting people but when she is like telling people truths about the way that she is feeling like when jane is like when you're going to marry miss ingram you're going to have to leave and i like won't have a home anymore and he's like what do you mean by that and she literally says like quote Wherever you are is my home, my only home. 
That is a crazy thing to say to your boss. She's a really good communicator. It's really romantic. Yeah, and that's something I wrote into the outline. Is that more romantic than I must tell you how ardently I admire and love you? It is a simpler sentence and it means more. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I think that one has definitely made it into present day romance novels as well. That image of this singular perfect person who doesn't exist in real life being your home. Well, and, like, the thing about Mr. Rochester is he, like, isn't a singular and perfect person. Like, he's... Oh, no. In Jane Eyre, that's not how she... Uh, yeah. In context, that's not how Jane means it. But, yeah, as the image has been translated. Well, and I think that it's also more romantic than Mr. Darcy saying, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. Doesn't he say that in the first proposal? Yeah, the one where he's like, I hate your family. I admire and love you ardently because your family sucks. Yeah. I, yeah, the you are my home sentiment has definitely come forward in a big way. But like, I'm yawning again. When Jane is like, like trying to convince herself not to love him, she says things like, I had not intended to love him. The reader knows I had wrought hard to extirpate from my soul the germs of love. Like, she's really like, she's like, dang it. I should have been talking like Jane Eyre when I had a crush on Sam with his mustache. (laughs) He had a mustache? Oh, Betsy was awful. It was the summer after we went out the first time, but I hadn't asked him out again next. And it was a real, it was a real ham bone of a mustache. It like came like halfway down, like past his mouth. It was like he had like kind of gone for Hulk Hogan, but hadn't committed. Oh no. <laughs> it wasn't his best work. He's grown better mustaches since then. But that one there, I was like, wow, that mustache is terrible. And yet, here we are. Um. Yes. I feel like we've talked about Jane Eyre enough. I feel like an hour and 15 minutes on Jane Eyre is enough time on Jane Eyre. Yeah, I think that's true. You can teach entire lecture classes about Jane Eyre, (laughs) but this is not a podcast for English majors. No. But I feel like there was lots to learn about Jane Eyre. I feel here, let's bullet point what people need to be thinking about as we read the rest of these books. One, if we are to understand that Jane Eyre is a book about Jane, what are we going to learn from the other versions of Jane Eyre and what they're choosing to pull into them from this, like, very long and literary novel? Two, what, how are these books going to handle the concept of a mad woman in the attic in the present time? And bigamy. Like, what are they going to, like, are we just going to have, like, a little cheating plot line? Like, what are we going to, what are we going to do about the fact that, like, Rochester is, like, married, married in this book? And are they going to be able to make it hit as hard as it does for, like, Mason to stand up in the church and say, like, this marriage cannot come to pass? Well, Jane, I think, the the book we're reading next week, Jane, is going to be the only present day update. And I think it makes sense that this one hasn't gotten quite as much traction as an adapted novel as Pride and Prejudice, because as much as I love it, modern men can get divorces. I 
Oh, I forgot that you told me that My Plain Jane was a was a zombie book. It is. It's like Jane Eyre and zombies. Oh my gosh. Wait. I thought we were reading the one that mom loved, the one that's like the mystery one set at Oxford. No, that one's more Pan Bronte of West Jane Eyre. Okay. Okay. This will be fun then. It's going to be interesting. Um, do you have anything we think that us and readers need to be looking for when we're thinking about the difference between the original text and our rewritten versions? So, um, what do they do with the early part of the book? Yes. Because if you're going to adapt Jane Eyre, um, is there, is there going to be a boarding school? Is there going to be an... Are they going to talk about her time with the Reeds? Like, when you adapt Pride and Prejudice, there is a very specific set of things that go into a Pride and Prejudice adaptation. But that's because there's only one story being told in Pride and Prejudice. And Jane Eyre has a lot of different subplots that you've got to juggle. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Because either you're going to rewrite Jane Eyre, or... You're going to write about Jane in Rochester. Yeah. Like, are you going to do the thing, the whole thing, or are you just going to break it down to the romance plot within it? And we've got books that do both here. And then we've got White Sargasso Sea, which I think is kind of going to come out of left field. I was thumbing through it last night, and it's very kind of postmodern literary which I hope doesn't mean it's incomprehensible. Now, what does postmodern literary mean? You know I don't know those words all put together. So postmodernists don't believe that life has any meaning anymore. Um, and sometimes they write kind of experimental stuff that's hard to understand. Like, it doesn't necessarily have a traditional plot flow. It might be very stream of consciousness. Oh, well, I want someone to write a book that handles Bertha's true plight carefully. I hope that this author does handle it carefully and does I think do does, it deliberately. Yeah. Jean, or is it Jean? I, I'm not really sure if it's Jean or Jean Reese. I, we are I from Kansas. We can hit yeah. people with, with Jean Reese. Anyway, uh, she is Caribbean. And this is a very kind of post-colonial reading. Mm. Okay. That will be interesting. Yes. So this pod, the Jane Eyre pod, will drop... The same day as we read Jane, it's going to be a really confusing looking podcast feed because it's going to say, Jane Eyre, Jane, my plain Jane, Jane Eyre, comparison contrast. It'll be interesting, but it will. We will be reading Jane. I don't remember the author at this exact moment, but that's okay. April Lindner. Yes. And we'll dig all in on Jane Eyre. I hope some of the adaptations are spooky. Well, the zombie one will be spooky. But I don't remember whether or yeah. not Jane is spooky. I don't think it is. Yeah. 
I think when I read the back, it was actually vampires and not zombies. But it's definitely Jane fighting the supernatural. It's part of a series of books. Lady Jane Grey, Calamity Jane, all the literary Janes come out and fight monsters. Oh, that's fun. That's really fun. Okay, so we will start with Jane next week. Uh, follow us on Instagram at English Majors Pod. Send us an email at EnglishMajorsPod at gmail.com. We are not going to do Goodreads this week because this book is Jane Eyre. Um, <laughs> I don't really know what I would read on Goodreads that hasn't already been written and locked behind a paywall on JSTOR. Um, and we'll see you next week. Or I guess I'll see you when you hit next episode. <laughs>